We now have over a dozen well-known antipsychotic medications available to us. Has the treatment of schizophrenia improved in the last decade? How best do we treat these patients? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry and Foothills Foundation in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, and with me today is Dr. Steve Lamberti. Dr. Lamberti is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of the Severe Mental Disorders Program at the University of Rochester Medical Center, where he currently oversees schizophrenia treatment and research. His research is aimed at developing new treatment approaches for adults with schizophrenia, especially those at risk for repeated arrest and incarceration. Dr. Lamberti has published numerous articles on the treatment of schizophrenia, and his work has received national recognition, including the 1999 APA Gold Award and the 2004 APA Van Ameringen Award. Welcome. Well, thanks, Leslie. It's great to be here. Now, Dr. Lamberti, there are many challenges in treating schizophrenia, of course, but what's really hot? What's going on right now in the treatment of schizophrenia? Well, I'd boil it down to two challenges. Um, one is effectiveness. Our medications are pretty good at treating psychotic symptoms. They're antipsychotic medications, after all, but they're not so good at treating cognitive and negative symptoms, which are the most disabling symptoms. And the other challenge is tolerability. Because what we're finding is that even though our new medications, in some cases, are more effective than the old ones, uh, we're finding problems with side effects still, particularly metabolic side effects. With so many medicine choices and so many potential problems, uh, where does one even begin? Leslie, that really depends on the patient. Uh, For new patients, and I'm going to make some generalizations For new patients, we usually start with the most tolerable medications, but then for chronic or more treatment refractory patients, that's where we use our most effective medications, which tend to have more side effects. Now, Steve, some of the non-psychiatrists in the audience may not be familiar with what was such a pivotal trial for those of us in psychiatry called the CATI trial. Could you tell us briefly about that trial and and what the CATI trial has taught us about choosing antipsychotics? Sure. Uh, Katie is the largest federally funded drug study in history. It was $43 million of the taxpayers' money. And it did a simple thing. It gave a head-to-head comparison of our new antipsychotic drugs and one of our older, less expensive antipsychotic drugs. And we treated 1,500 patients for 18 months. So this was a large study. It involved real-world patients So these were folks that uh, were suffering from drug abuse. They had medical problems. Some of them were noncompliant, the sort of patients that you'll see in a general um, outpatient practice. And if I were to boil down the results of the Katie study, I'd boil it down to two lessons learned. One is that there are no good or bad medications. Each one has its own uh, strengths. Each one has its own liabilities. And that there is a spectrum of effectiveness and tolerability, which means that the most tolerable medications have the fewest side effects, whereas the most effective medications have the most side effects. And that gives us some guidelines for which medication is right for which patient. 
One of the controversies surrounding the Katie trial was that it might seem at first glance that the newer medicines really aren't that much better than the at least the one older one that they looked at. What do you think about that? I remember when the study got published, I got interviewed by a reporter who spent an hour asking me about the Katie study. And then that night at 10 o'clock, I was watching TV with my daughters, let them stay up late. We had popcorn. Daddy's going to be on television. <laughs> and the, uh, the reporter boiled an hour down into a little sound bite. Old medicines, just as good as new medicines, oh. and a lot less expensive. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the sound bite, Leslie. But the results were a little bit more complicated than that. We did find that an older medicine, perfenazine, was as effective and generally as tolerable as many of the new medicines, but not all of them. We found that two medications were more effective, olanzapine uh, or Zyprexa and clozapine or clozaril, but those two medications had the highest rates of weight gain, hyperlipidemia, and hyperglycemia. So it suggests that when we're starting patients on medications for the first time, we can use the newer medicines or even some of the older ones like perfenazine. But if patients fail on those medicines, it's time to bring out uh, the big guns. So just like the rest of medicine, really, use the safer ones first. And in treatment-resistant patients, you go to the ones that may have more complications. You know, Leslie, I think that that's what Katie showed us, that antipsychotic drugs are similar to antihypertensives, chemotherapeutic agents, antibiotics. The less effective medications are first-line drugs, and the big guns have more side effects. And that certainly perhaps we should consider cost a bit more than we have traditionally with not throwing out the older medicines. I think that if clozapine wouldn't have been the first atypical, because it was one of the ones that's much more effective, if that had not been the first medicine, I don't think we would have thought in terms of first and second generation or old and new. I think that medicine was just so different that it convinced many of us that we have a whole new class of compounds. But I think what the research is really showing us is that, no, um, there's a big overlap between first and second generation medications. So that's not an important distinction. We really have to look at each medication and what potential it has in terms of effectiveness and side effects. So I would not be too quick at this point to throw out the older medications. I think the only question mark about them is tardive dyskinesia. And what about that? Actually, I was in the hospital today and overheard one of my primary care colleagues talking on his cell phone to what I presume was another physician, and he was talking about risperidone. And, you know, of course, I just heard a, a glimpse of the conversation, but he said, you know, I didn't know risperidone could cause tardive dyskinesia, and they're having this whole heated discussion about this. That spoke to me that perhaps people really do underestimate some of the problems with the newer medicines. Yes. Risperidone's a high-potency medication, so it's a strong dopamine antagonist. That means it's a little more likely to cause extrapyramidal side effects, perhaps including tardive dyskinesia, than some of the other medications. Uh, but in general, with the other atypicals, uh, like Seroquel or Abilify or, or Ziprazidone, Olanzapine, we don't worry as much about tardiskinesia. In some of those medications, 
particularly uh, olanzapine and clozapine. We worry about metabolic problems, and to some extent with Seroquel and Risperidone. Tardive dyskinesia tends to be more characteristic of high-potency atypicals or most of the typicals. So we, we just need to keep an eye on whether tardive dyskinesia rates are really that different between older and newer medicines and how we can minimize the potential for metabolic side effects with antipsychotic drugs. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is the director of the Severe Mental Disorders Program at the University of Rochester Medical Center, Dr. Steve Lamberti. We are discussing the pharmacotherapy of schizophrenia. Now, Steve, we, we've talked a little bit about metabolic syndrome, especially in olanzapine and clozapine patients. How do we screen for that? I, I think there's a lot of confusion about that out there. As practicing physicians, what should we do if we do have a patient on olanzapine? Well, Leslie, there are many reports about what to do, and I think it lends some confusion. Published guidelines have been put out by the American Psychiatric Association, the Mount Sinai Conference. I like to follow the KISS principle when it comes to monitoring. That's keep it super simple. What I recommend is every six months monitoring patients for weight, their lipid profile, their fasting blood glucose, and blood pressure. And I recommend doing that on all patients receiving any antipsychotic drug, whether it's olanzapine or some other medication. Now, when somebody uh, develops metabolic side effects, the question that needs to be asked is whether the medication can be changed or not. Uh, we just published a, a paper in the March issue of uh, Jaclyn Psych where we took a cohort of patients who had gained weight on risperidone and olanzapine, and we switched them to Abilify, one of the new medicines which causes less weight gain. And the good news was that those patients who were switched successfully, they did have a decrease in their weight and a decrease in their lipids. Uh, the bad news was that not everybody was able to be switched. So switching is an option uh, if patients can tolerate the switch. And unfortunately, by the time somebody gets to a medication like clozapine, chances are they won't respond to any other medication. So those patients are really between a rock and a hard space. So just to review, every six months you recommend weight, lipid panel, fasting, blood sugar, and blood pressure. That's correct. And you can certainly do it more frequently if a patient has more risk factors. For instance, if you see um, a middle-aged African-American woman who is overweight and who has a family history of diabetes, you would want to monitor her more closely than someone who's young, Caucasian, with fewer risk factors. But in general, just to keep it simple, every six months. I like to keep it simple because I think a lot of clinicians are not monitoring patients closely. No, I think we're not. And a little honesty time here. Actually, in our clinic, we've tried really hard in the last year to set up a simple monitoring program, really measuring the four things that you've outlined. And it's been incredibly difficult for us old dogs to, to change our ways. And clinicians have been very resistant for no good reason, really, but to get these things done on a regular basis and to make sure it's happening. So it, it sounds so simple, but in practicality, it really is changing behavior on the clinician. Part. It really is a paradigm shift because what's implied if we're monitoring 
metabolic side effects is that we are going to be able to address them. And I'm amazed how there's a million publications, including some of mine, which talk about the frequency of diabetes or metabolic syndrome. But if you look at how many publications actually talk about what you do about it, you can count on one hand the number of studies that have talked about wellness interventions. You know, we have a day treatment program here, and what we talk about is changing our talking groups to walking groups Ah, to be able to start moving in a direction of promoting wellness, and that is a major shift for our field. Well, thank you, Steve. I appreciate your words of wisdom. We've been discussing how to treat schizophrenia with Dr. Steve Lamberti. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.